1 Corinthians 16.1 says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. So one of the things I love about teaching through the word of God is that we cover all the various topics as we go verse by verse in chapter by chapter. We started in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, and we spent the last five weeks in chapter 15 talking about resurrection. As we go through verse by verse and chapter by chapter, we hit all of the various things that are important to God and in the proportion with which they're important to God. So today we're going to talk about money and generosity, not because we have a certain building thing we're doing, not because there's a promotional thing happening, but because it's next in the word of God. Are you with me with that church? The second thing is, is I want to challenge you about compartmentalizing your life. You might come and say, well, pastor, I got real issues in my life. Money, that's not even something I'm concerned with. I don't know if you're human if you say that because everybody seems to be concerned about money, but it's easy to compartmentalize and feel like, well, I've got issues over here, but not in this area. The Bible says, Jesus said, that there's a connection between our heart and our resources. So actually, the way you handle your resources says a lot about where your heart is and where your heart is will affect everything in your entire life. Actually, how you think about resources, how you think about money, how you think about time, that's another thing we treasure, isn't it? Time. How you think about those things actually can greatly impact the rest of your life. So where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. That's what Jesus said. So as we get into this, this chapter, I was kind of excited to preach on it because we don't preach on it that often because it doesn't come up that often, but we get a chance to really think about not just giving, but we get to think about compassion and mercy and generosity and the body of Christ. So that's where we're heading. And my question as we head into that is, how many of you feel like you're really good at planning? Some of you feel like you're good planners. Nah, not so much. How many of you were just day to day? Whatever happens today, that's what happens. I'm kind of like a, a ship floating in the ocean and not really kind of rudderless and powerless and whatever way the wind is blowing, that's what I do today. Some people think planning is unspiritual. And I really take issue with that because we call it the plan of salvation. God didn't go, oh no, Adam and Eve sinned. Now what do I do? There was a plan. So if there are things in your life that you want to do, if there are things in your life that you know are right to do and you should do, and they just never happen for you, maybe it's because you don't have a plan. If you don't plan it, it'll never happen. Then whatever just happens to come along will be what takes up the minutes of your life. Ben Franklin said, if you fail to plan, then you are planning to fail. Good quote, isn't it? So the first part of the section for today has to do with having a plan for being generous. And the second part has to do with having a plan for doing ministry, for being involved in ministries. So first part involves your money, maybe, and the second, your time. So let's see what we have to learn from this. First of all, he says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must also do. Who are the saints? What saints are we talking about here? He said it down farther in verse three, 
he's taking the gift to Jerusalem, so that ought to give us a clue. Where are the saints he's concerned about, God's people he's concerned about? They're in Jerusalem. Now, he's writing to a people who live in Corinth. How many of you know there's a long way between Corinth and Jerusalem? And there's also a little bit of a cultural divide. The church in Jerusalem was largely Jewish. And the Jews, well, they had issues with the Greeks, the Gentiles, coming into the kingdom, being saved by God. So there's just a natural difficulty blending these two groups of people. So they're in Jerusalem, and they're largely Jewish, but the church is in Galatia, the church is in Greece. They're largely Gentile. So Paul is doing this collection. He's trying to help meet their needs. What's happening in Jerusalem? Well, in Jerusalem, remember, right after Pentecost, thousands of people got saved. Thousands of people came to know Jesus as their Savior, as their Messiah. And then in the early church, how many of you ever said, I wish the church now was like the early church? Has anybody ever said that? I wish things were more like when the church was young, in the early church. Things were hopping then. Things were great then. Well, in the early church, here's a quote from Acts chapter 2, verses 43 to 45. It says, everyone around was in awe. All those wonders and signs done through the apostles and all the believers lived in wonderful harmony, holding everything in common. They sold whatever they owned and pooled their resources so that each person's need was met. That's from the Message Bible. So if you say, oh, I wish things were like they were in the early church, well, feel free to sell all that you have and give it to those in need. I think that'd be great. But that was life in the early church. And that was life in the Jerusalem church. That's where the church was born, in Jerusalem. But then a couple things happened. If you read on in the book of Acts, they were supposed to, remember Jesus said, go out into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples and baptizing. And, and lo, I'll be with you always. You remember in the gospel of Matthew, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, they loved staying in Jerusalem. They didn't want to go anywhere. They were enjoying what God was doing there. So God used two things to really move them out. He used famine and he used persecution. You can read Acts 11, Acts 12, and it'll show you that what has happened in the church in Jerusalem is a famine has come and persecution has come after Stephen was stoned. Persecution comes and people are starting to be dispersed like seeds. So God says, all right, if the seeds aren't going to get up and go, I'm going to have to toss them out there. So Jerusalem church Now there's people are dispersed. There's a famine going on. There's a lot of people in need. And how many of you have noticed that one of the things that God does in a life is he takes people who were formerly takers. I don't know about you, but man, I was self-centered. I'm still largely self-centered, but somewhat less than I was before I was a believer. And he starts to awaken you to the needs of others because that's Christ in you. Jesus is very aware of the needs in in your life, in our lives. He's other-centered. Love does not seek its own, but the needs of others. So one of the things that happens when the Spirit of God comes to dwell in your life, you become very aware of the needs of others and a desire to meet those needs. Jesus highlights this in the parable of what? The good Samaritan. The religious people are walking by, but then the Samaritan, who's the hero of the story, who the Jews hated, sees this guy in need, and he steps in to do something. And he takes him, puts him on his donkey, patches up his wounds, takes him to the inn and says, and whatever other expenses he might incur, put it on my bill. And Jesus highlights that, compassion and mercy. So that's what's happening in Jerusalem. One more thing I'll mention in the book of Titus, 
Paul says to Titus, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So there's an urgent need in Jerusalem. There's urgent needs all the time, aren't there? You have to plan for emergencies because you know there's always going to be one. And I want you to know, church, that as I am preaching this this morning, I think Calvary Chapel Fluvanna has done a fantastic job meeting urgent needs. I've watched it year after year, various things. Some of you have been helped in your time of need. And some of you have contributed to other people's need. And so please understand that your pastor is not preaching this at you. We're just going through the word of God and encouraging you. And I'm saying, hey, you guys have done well in the past. But what we've done in the past doesn't necessarily mean we'll do well in the future. We're responding to God's word here. So it's important to be ready to meet urgent needs. And that's part of the Christian life, being ready to meet urgent needs in our community, in the church, whether it's a monsoon or a hurricane or whatever. Are we ready to meet those needs for those that are in need? One other thing, one of my favorite verses comes from Ephesians chapter four. Speaking of the new creation, like becoming a new person in Christ, Ephesians chapter four talks about this very thing, says, now let him who stole, so before you were a Christian, used to steal, rob other people, take from others. You were a taker. Let him who stole steal no more. It's not part of the Christian life. Rather, instead, let him work with his hands what is good so that he has something to give him who has need. Working for a living is not just about amassing more to myself. I don't work harder so I can get more, so I can do more for me. I might choose to work a few more hours so I have something to give someone who has need. I'm telling you, when you are able to give and be generous to somebody else, it just makes you feel great. All the research shows that being generous Generous people are happy people, and happy people are generous people. And we'll talk more about that as we get into it a little bit farther. So rather than stealing, you can work so you can have some money so you can give to someone who has needs. So he says to them, collection for the saints, again, the money, the collection that he's collecting from the Gentile churches is going to be taken back to the Jewish church. Money is a powerful tool, isn't it? And money is connected to all kinds of emotions. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But money can be a great tool for ministry. It's a great way to tell someone in a very practical way, I care about you, I understand, I feel for you. As a church, you may not know this, we do tons of benevolent work. The county sends people to us for benevolence. MACA sends people to us to help with benevolence. And one of the things we started doing is we have uh, Food Lion gift cards. So even if someone comes in and says, oh, you know, we've got this huge need. This is what's going on in our lives. And we may not be able to meet that need, but we hear you. And here's something to help you get by. Here's a gift card to Food Lion. We may not be able to do that, but here's something we can do. And it says, hey, we hear you and we care. We do care. So your contribution has done thousands and thousands of dollars of helping people in need. So that's the collection for these saints that are in Jerusalem. They're a long way away, but Paul is trying to say, even though they're a long way away, we need to step in and help them. We can't just be unmoved by their need. He also says that he's not setting a higher expectation for the Corinthian church than he is for any other church. He mentions the Galatian church, the church in Asia Minor in Turkey. He says, I've already talked to them about it, and now I'm talking to you about it. So there's not asking them to do something extraordinary, just what is the normal Christian life. When somebody's weeping, we weep with them. When somebody's hurting, we hurt with them. When somebody's rejoicing, we rejoice with them. And when someone's in need, 
we pool our resources to try to help them. And that's just part of being part of a family, part of being part of a community. So how are they supposed to do it? What's the plan? Well, Paul told them, he says, on the first day of the week. So the first point, I don't often do points, point by point sermons, but the first thing would be that plan to do it regularly. You know, in that culture, people that worked, especially the slaves, they weren't paid at the end of the month or at the end of two weeks, they were paid daily. Jesus tells parables about that. The workers paid at the end of the day. You picked up someone to work, he worked for you for the day, and then you paid him at the end of the day. At the end of the day, they would get their paycheck. And Paul is saying to them, on the first day of the week, whatever you've done that week, on the first day of the week, that's when you put something aside. Not the last day of the week, not if you've got some money left over at the end. How many of you have found out that if you wait, say, well, I'll give, but I'll wait till the end of the month, whatever I have left over, that's what I'll give. And how many of you have found out that there's never anything left over? But I think maybe some of you will agree with me. If you choose to make this sort of a part of your mandatory budget and you set it aside first, somehow at the end of the month, there's still something left. It's amazing the way that that happens. God always manages to help you meet the needs that you have in your life. Some people would say, well, I'll give as the Spirit leads. The problem is, is usually I find those people, the Spirit just never seems to lead them. But the truth is, the Spirit is always leading us toward generosity. So the first thing, and this is what keeps it, I think this is a good practice, is to make this just a regular part of your life. And you'll see how regularity fits in to the bigger picture of generosity and compassion and giving. He also says, let each one of you put aside something. So it's a mutual thing. Giving and compassion, mercy, not just the role of the wealthy in the church, but for everybody. Let each one. Are you in each one? Yeah, you're in each one. Everybody here is in each one. So there's a story I like to tell. Maybe you've heard it about four people named everybody, somebody, Anybody and nobody, do you know that story? Those of you that know it, you're going to hear it again. There was an important job to be done, an important need to be met. And everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry about that because it was everybody's job. Everybody thought anybody could do it, but nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. And I think giving generosity can be like that. There's a need that comes up and just the needs to the daily operations, the church, specific needs, urgent needs. These things come up and you might say, well, you know, somebody else will take care of that. And somebody else is saying, well, they'll take care of that. Then nobody does it when it's really whose job? Everybody's job. Because part of being part of a community is we share in the needs in the community. So to contribute, as these believers in Corinth are being encouraged to contribute to Jerusalem, it's saying, hey, we are one family. Now, some people don't know. If you've been around here, maybe you know this. But years ago, there was a church, local church, they were doing a building project. And they had come up a little short. They'd gone over budget. And I found out they were needing some help. And I knew at that time we were meeting in the school But we knew we were eventually heading toward a building project ourselves. And this church contributed quite a fairly good sum of money to that church's building project. And I got a call or an email, I forget what it was, after that, and just really floored, blown away, and blessed that a different denomination would contribute to another denomination's church building project. 
I love to blow people away with kindness, don't you? It's just great. It's like, who does that? A church where the Holy Spirit is leading creatively and generously gives of its resources. And I love that. And I want that to be true in my life. I find that people that are generally healthy in their whole life don't make excuses, they make adjustments. Does that make sense? You don't make excuses, you make adjustments. In this stage of my life, I want to live on less. I want to do with less. Anybody else need to cut back, slim down? We are in America. If you think, well, pastor, I'm poor. I don't have very much. You're an American. We got more than most people around the world. I'm not speaking to the poor. I'm speaking to those that have means. But you may just have to make an adjustment. I don't know about you, but I just want to slim down. I want to just live with less because God is teaching me I don't need a lot. I can't find my happiness in my things. I can't find my fulfillment in my things. I can't find my identity in my things. So I have some things I enjoy. We have some things we enjoy, but I can't need them. So I'm on this quest, like how little can I really live with? And it's a lot of fun. You should try it sometime. So many people make demands on the church. And I find that it's a very healthy person that says, I want to figure out how to contribute to the needs of the community. I'm not talking to you about money, right? But I'm talking to you about a mindset. You understand that, about a heart for generosity, giving, and sharing. So he says, and I like this, storing up as he may prosper. So his first day of the week, regularly, put something aside. This is what goes to helping others. And then we're all going to be doing that at the same time. And then he says, storing up as he may prosper. Now, he doesn't say tithing, does he? Paul could have said, I think that you guys should just be tithing. But he doesn't say that. And I will challenge you to find me a verse outside of the Gospel of Matthew. The one verse on tithing is where Jesus talks to the Pharisees. They were tithing mint and cumin and all their seeds. And he said, that's good, but you're leaving these other things undone. You're not being merciful. You're not loving people. You're ignoring justice. And that's the only place... Find one other place where Paul says to the church or any of the epistle writers say to the church, you need to tithe. You're not going to find it. So maybe you came from a church that teaches tithing. Tithing means 10%. I think 10% is great. But for some people, 10% is a minimum. How many of you know Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback Church? He sold tons of books and made tons of money. But even before that, he was already generously giving and increasing his giving year by year, even when he didn't have much he and his wife. So now he reverse tithes. He gives 90% back to the Lord and he keeps 10%. And from what I hear, he's just moved it to 9% and 91%. But that's been the trend in his life. So he is into reverse tithing. Think about the widow. Everybody else is giving these big contributions and making a big deal about it. The widow brings, you know, two mites, just half a penny. And Jesus remarks about that. She's given more than everybody else. So evidently, it's not about an amount, right? It's not about a number or a figure. It's about a heart and sacrifice. And that's what he notices about the widow. How many of you saw the movie Schindler's List? Anybody remember that movie Schindler's List? How many of you remember that scene at the end where he rescued 1,200 Jewish lives? 1,200 people. And in the last scene, he's there. He looks at his car and he says, why did I keep this car? I mean, if I had sold this car, that would have been 10 lives. What about this watch? This watch, it's worth two lives. 
Oskar Schindler paid millions of dollars to Nazi German officials to save the lives of the Jewish employees in his enamelware plant that he had. Maybe you don't know this, but because of that, he eventually went bankrupt. And in his later days, his later years after declaring bankruptcy, he survived on donations from some of the Jewish people that he had saved. He gave away everything. Imagine that. Imagine going down to the bank, getting into your safe, grabbing your safe deposit box, getting the deed to your car, the deed to your house, emptying your bank account, big sack, and heading on down to the soup kitchen and finding someone who's homeless and saying, this is all yours. And you become homeless and they move into your place, have all your stuff and all of your money. I mean, that's like off the chart, isn't it? That is what Jesus did for you and for me. That's what he did for us. The reality is he became poor so that through his poverty, we could become rich. 1 John 3.16, one of my favorite verses, because again, the nice thing is, throwing up as he may prosper, Paul doesn't give a number. He says, based on your income. Based on your income. Those of you that make more like a Rick Warren, if you make $10 million in a year and you can't live on a million dollars a year, we got to talk. So you could give away $9 million and live on a million. But someone who only makes a meager wage, a meager salary, maybe they give less. So it's really proportionate to, that's what Paul says, as you prosper. There's no number, there's no figure, there's no obligation. It's just, hey, as you're able, God loves a cheerful giver. Whatever you can give cheerfully from your heart, that's what you give, that's what you donate. I like this, 1 John 3, 16 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And you can read that and go, Pastor, if you were in trouble, if someone attacked you, I'd lay my life down for you and I would take a bullet for you or whatever it was. But normally that's not gonna happen. That's not a daily occurrence. That's not necessarily something that we're gonna actually be able to do. So John goes on to explain, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? And he says, dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. In other words, John says, we should put our money where our mouth is. Isn't that what he says? See, when you go to work, your work or your money represents your life. Because that's what you do with your days and your minutes and your hours. How many of you work hard for your money? Oh, so hard for the money. I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. You know, we work hard. But sometimes our mentality is, hey, I worked hard for this money. Let them work hard for their money. Now, I'm not saying you just give randomly, without discretion, without seeking God on that. I'm not saying that at all. The Bible also says if you don't work, you don't eat. So we're not talking about sustaining people who are sponging off the body of Christ. What we're talking about is just generosity in our own hearts. Forget about everybody else. It's cultivating a generous spirit that comes from this place. This is what love does. How do we know love? Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. How can we lay down our lives for others? We can be generous when we see needs and not just talk about being generous. So that's my verse. That's why I don't teach tithing. If someone asks me about giving, that's the verse I go to. If you see a need, if you see someone hurting or in need, how do you shut up your heart from that? How do you ignore that when you have the love of Christ in you? And Christ has done so much for you. Anybody here, Christ done a lot. Christ bless you. Oh, man, I am so blessed. It is so good to be one of God's children. He loves to give good gifts to his children. 
But our tendency is to live just a little bit over our means, isn't it? Let me read you a quick article just in case you think this pastor is out of his mind. Sometimes the world figures out that God has always been right. You know that, right? Sometimes the world catches up with God. This is an article, Can Tithing Make You Rich? Why Some of the World's Wealthiest Give Away 10% of Their Money. So again, you've already heard me say, I don't teach tithing, but the article comes from that perspective. So you know that I'm not saying you should tithe. I'm saying what I said already. All right, we together, church. He says, yet if there's nothing to tithing, there's nothing to it, and if the idea that it manifests wealth is purely imaginary, then what are we to make of this observation from mutual fund pioneer Sir John Templeton? Keep in mind that Templeton was one of the greatest investors of the 20th century, so he knew a thing or two about money and business. Here's what he said. I have observed 100,000 families over my years of investment counseling. I always saw greater prosperity and happiness among those families who tithed than among those who didn't. That's been noted over and over and over again. Although much we hear about tithing comes from an evangelical Christian perspective, keep in mind that the practice of gratitude and the idea of reaping what you sow are not exclusively religious concepts. So he kind of backs down off the tithing thing there and says, hey, just gratitude has shown over and over and over to be connected to happiness and contentment. Maybe somebody's here and you just know you're just never content. No matter how much you have, that's what Rockefeller said. I asked him how much is enough. He said, just a little more, just a little more. And giving generosity breaks that cycle in your life of needing just a little more because what's happening in your heart is there's just no contentment. Contentment doesn't come from stuff. Contentment comes from a God who you trust and who takes care of your every need. And when you give yourself to him and you trust him by faith, then it becomes so much easier, doesn't it, church? One more thing he says, This is a quote from Sean Hyman, a Texas-based pastor turned financial advisor. He's a regular guest on CNBC, Fox Business. And here's what he said about tithing. People grapple with that concept, but I found it to be correct. He says, the average American lives too high on the hog, as we'd say in Arkansas, which is where I'm from. Really, people should live off no more than 70% of their income. You need that extra padding in case something comes up. And almost every year, something will come up whether you need a new roof on your house or your car engine blows up. And then he says, a lot of scriptural principle doesn't make sense to our minds, including giving away 10%, but it works. All it takes is an inkling of faith. I would tithe if I had to hold down three jobs, he said. If you prefer, here's John D. Rockefeller again. He said, I never would have been able to tithe the first million dollars I ever made if I had not tithed my first salary, which was $1.50 per week. If you don't do it when you have little, this collection, the people from Macedonia, 2 Corinthians, Paul says, they gave out of their lack, not out of their abundance. They didn't have much. How many of you have been to a place around the world where you meet some people that don't have near as much as us and they're way more generous and way more happy? I've traveled a number of places from Nepal to Ukraine. They don't have nearly what we have and they're so happy and they're so generous. So these things are not about the number, but about the intention, the heart behind it. And if you say, I can't give now, I can't be generous now, then you'll never be generous with what you have later on. So that's an article from a money magazine that I found. So just in case you were thinking that the Bible had it wrong, the Bible just shows that the world catches up and says, hey, these are things that are part of a healthy life. 
You know, I don't run away from teaching on this, even though it makes some people squirm. It might make you squirm if you're greedy. That's true. It might make you squirm, but it's part of a healthy Christian life, part of a healthy life. And as your pastor, I want you to lead a healthy, fulfilled life. And part of that is generosity. Are you with me, church? You hear your pastor's heart in this? You guys have done great. Many of you have. Some of you may have needed to hear this today. So he says, this is what we do. We do it regularly. We do it mutually. We do it in advance so that no collections are taken when I come. Do you see that next part of that verse? So that no collections happen when I come. That's sort of why we don't pass an offering plate around here because we don't want you to give, I don't want you to give out of obligation, but willingly. He wants them to be prepared. So here's the deal. You've been to churches where there's pleas for money. Please, we need this. If you don't give, it's on TV. If you don't give, the church is going to go under. Then go under. If God is not blessing it, then go under. But here's what happens. And here's why we don't make a lot of pleas for money around here. If you've been coming to this church for a while, you know I rarely preach on giving. But I preach on it when it comes up. So the cool thing is, is that we have been able to do so much ministry because God puts it on the heart of his people to donate to the ministry here and therefore the needs are met. And if more money comes in, we'll do more ministry. If less money comes in, we'll do less ministry. You guys are part of that. We just do what the Lord enables us to do without cranking you over the head about you don't give enough. I mean, so many people, so many of God's precious people have been beat over the head about giving and generosity. That's why we said, no, we're not passing an offering plate. But here's what happened. I don't know if you've ever had a situation like this. If you've heard my giving story, then you're going to hear it again because it's the only story I got. And it's really a good one. So I go to a church service after our church service. It was like a midday service. It's kind of a multi-church community service. And there was about 30 or 40 people there. And, and I went right from church because it was in the afternoon. I didn't go home. And I'm married and I have kids and I don't have any money. So I'm just not carrying any money with me, no cash. So I get to the church, the service is going on, and it comes time to take the collection. And I thought, okay, they'll just pass the collection plate. Oh, no, not passing the collection plate at this service. Instead, row by row, you know where I'm going with this? Row by row, you have to get up and parade yourself down front in front of everybody else. That's where the offering plate is. You got to put your offering in and then come back to your seat. Now, I begin to sweat profusely because I'm like in the third row and I have no money and I'm going, okay, what am I going to do now? Do I just sit here? Do people do that? I mean, when everybody gets up, what if I just sit here? How will that look? What will people think? I'm a mess. I'm a mess. So my aisle comes, my row comes and I get up with the row and I'm still going down and go, I don't know what I'm going to do. So do you know what your pastor did? I'm telling stories on myself. Do you know what I did? As I came through the plate, I put my hand in my pocket. I grabbed imaginary money. I had a million dollars of imaginary money. And I put it imaginarily in the pan there and walked back to my seat going, what have I just done? (laughs) I didn't know what to do. The point is, is that if you can't give it willingly, generously, if you can't give it cheerfully, then don't give it. God is not poor. He doesn't need your money, but it's a great tool for ministry. But giving helps you separate from selfishness and materialism. And when you give, here's what happens. When you give to others, you make a choice. We're going to live 
at a little bit lower level than we could. So someone else might be able to live at a little higher level than they could. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Paul said to the Corinthians already, even if you could sell all that you had and give it to the poor, if you don't have love, forget about it. That was my version. It's nothing. So here's my equation. You ready for a little math? Gratitude plus love equals generosity. Grateful people who have the love of God in their hearts are naturally generous. So the final thing, verse 3, is, And when I come, he says, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. So the collection has to get from point A to point B, has to get from Corinth all the way over to Jerusalem. And Paul says, I'm going to be accountable above board financially. You guys pick someone to take it because I don't want any temptation, any accusation to be able to come in over what Paul is doing with the money. See, the money was set aside for the work of God. And Paul wanted to make sure that it got there. There was no temptation, no accusation could come in about maybe Paul using the money for himself. I think it's a good thing. The last point in terms of your own giving, I think if you want this to be part of your life, if you want to cultivate generosity, then find someone to help hold you accountable. Because then you can talk about it. Hey, hey, you know, I know you wanted to give. I know you're making a plan, but are you following through? Are you taking what you were setting aside for God and using it for yourself? So holding yourself accountable, having someone else that says, okay, we'll put our checks in together. We'll meet that need together. Then that can be, I think, really helpful. So that verse three just speaks of accountability. Paul's coming to get it. It's got to get to Jerusalem. All right. So that's planning in terms of generosity. Now planning in terms of ministry. We'll just fly through a couple of verses here. He said, now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia. So Paul is in Ephesus in ancient Turkey. And he's in the city there and he's going up to the north through northern Greece and he's going to come down through there to come to Corinth, which is in southern Greece. But notice something that he sets an example for for us. When it comes to planning, he's not just planning, but he's communicating his plans to the other people involved. It's much better when you plan to communicate with other people about your plans so they know what to expect. If there's no communication, there'll be a lot of imagination. Have you noticed that in your marriage? Have you noticed that in your life? If you don't communicate with people, you don't tell them what you're thinking, then they start to make up a bunch of stuff in their mind. They have to imagine it. So Paul is just using good communication with the church in Corinth. Here's how it's going to happen. Verse 6, and it may be, maybe that I'll remain, or maybe I'll spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. So wonderfully unspecific, isn't he? Wonderfully great. Look, that's the wonderful thing about plans. You know, blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. So when it comes to planning, having a plan is good. Planning is good. Plans are useless. Can I say that again? Planning is good and necessary, but plans are useless because they often change. So you have to allow for that in your planning. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So he's blessedly ambiguous. Maybe I'll remain. Maybe I'll spend the winter wherever I'm going next. Verse 7, he says, For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay with you a while. Look at that, if the Lord permits. Isn't that a great thing to, to think about? As you make plans, James said, Why do you make so many plans about what you're going to do in a year, what you're going to do three years from now? Who knows what tomorrow brings? 
our life is a vapor. So have plans, but recognize they can change real quick, can't they? So the lesson is make plans for what you're going to do in the future, but do today what you know you're supposed to do. The Lord permits. What a great, wonderful recognition of our humanity. Here's what I'm planning, but you know what? Maybe the Lord has other plans. Have any of you experienced the Lord having other plans for you? If the Lord permits. But he says, I will tarry in Ephesus. That's where he is until Pentecost. That's 50 days after Passover. For a great and effective door has opened to me and there are many adversaries. So he says, look, guys, I'm hanging out in Ephesus. He's there for like three years in Ephesus. People are getting saved. People are repenting. They're burning their magic books. I mean, there's a huge revival going on in Ephesus. And Paul is teaching in a school. He's got a public location. He works all morning. Then he teaches in the afternoon, the word of God. And then he goes back to work in the evening. And people are hearing the word and it's changing their lives. And he is just riding this wave. God is using him to do miracles. Awesome things are happening. He says, I want to hang out here. But there's also a lot of adversaries. I also have a lot of opposition. Anytime God is doing good things through you, you will have opposition. It's kind of a good sign. It's kind of an interesting sign that if you're in a place where there's fruit, but no opposition, that may not be the Lord's fruit. You may not be doing what the Lord wants you to do. But if you're in a place where there's only opposition and no fruit, then you also may not be in the place the Lord wants you to be. You know, if there's no fruit there and all there is is opposition, maybe you should go. But here he says, there's effectiveness, there's an open door, and there are adversaries. And those two things together, if there's no open door, there are adversaries, get out of there. If there's no adversaries but an open door, maybe that's not the place for you either. So I like that in this verse. And if Timothy comes, he says, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace that he may come to me for I am waiting for him with the brethren. So Timothy was working alongside of Paul. Very personal chapter. We see some of the inner workings of the early church, people moving from A to B, ministry happening, churches being planted, revivals happening. It's very dynamic. And I love to read about all the names and the people and the places. It makes it real to me. Does it make it real to you? These are real people working it out in real time and providing for real needs because there's real poverty and real hurt. So I don't know where you are with all of this. Maybe the Lord is challenging you in a new way. Maybe you've just been coming here and you've not felt compelled to contribute to the work of the ministry. This church has a primary place in this community. You know, we do a lot of ministry in our own community. And you could be part of that. You can help contribute to that. The more we have as resources, the more ministry we'll be able to do. Isn't that true? So it's really up to you guys. But really the question is, what's the Lord doing in your heart? What's the Lord doing in your heart in terms of generosity and compassion? Important things, aren't they, church?